Hello, you're listening to Social Science Talk Science Fiction, a podcast where social scientists, researchers, theorists and philosophers discuss the themes and works of science fiction. This podcast is recorded in the basement of the International Politics Department at Aberystwyth University and is available free under a Creative Commons license. If you'd like to see or hear more from us, check out the website at socialsciencetalks.wordpress.com, subscribe on iTunes or tweet at social underscore sci-fi. We hope you enjoy the program. Margaret Atwood's novel, The Handmaid's Tale, tells of a world where pollution and toxic weapons have rendered much of the population of the United States infertile. When a religious coup restyles society into the Republic of Gilead, fertile women are reduced to the role of the biblical Bilhah, acting as surrogate wombs for powerful married couples. As one of these handmaidens, the protagonist, Afred, describes the effect that this has on her bodily autonomy. She says... I used to think of my body as an instrument of pleasure or a means of transportation or an implement for the accomplishment of my will. Now the flesh arranges itself differently. I'm a cloud congealed around a central object, the shape of a pear, which is hard and more real than I am and glows red within its translucent wrapping. First published in 1985, The Handmaid's Tale retains much of its relevance despite the end of the Cold War. Today, the book still has much to tell us about the role of religion in American politics, women in society, and about the ways in which historians treat documents and their writers. I'm Jess Shahan. Joining me today are... I'm Matthew Campbell. I'm Lydia Cole. So, starting off first with the topic of history and how we write history. It seems odd to jump to the end of the book first, but it's the part that stands out for me personally the most. It's, it's deeply conveniently relevant, because this is your expertise area. So, As a historian, I find that I view the personal narratives as primary to understanding the history, whereas the history and the lecture at the end of this book seems to value the either patterns or larger structures above the individual or the effect on experiences or the individual. We should probably do a, a beat for the audience. Um, it's revealed at the end of the novel that while the entirety was taking place as a first-person narrative, that it's actually a reconstructed set of audio diaries that some academics have found far in the future. And the final chapter is from the point of view of a male academic who's extremely dismissive of Offred's um, account and quite disinterested in her life. And not only is he dismissive of her, he is also dismissive of his female colleagues or those educated uh, at universities in the United States before this came about. I think there's the one thing I found really as a weird twist is that, of course, Gilead is deeply misogynistic. Women are literally objects. But in that final chapter, there's that quote you mentioned where the academic is apparently does not think much of um, he says uh, she appeared to have been an educated woman insofar as a graduate of any North American college could be said to be educated and then the very next page he's talking about one of the religious fanatics from Gilead one of the sons of Jacob and he says he was a hardliner and is credited by Lipkin as th- with this remark our big mistake was teaching them to read we won't do that again now one of those is violently angry against women, and the other one is meant to be a joke, and yet it's the latter one that respects women's intelligence. 
and the former one that dismisses it. It's an interesting dynamic that I think is perhaps intentionally a critique by Atwood of academia, and that it can be both dismissive but also at times celebratory of education as um, either a class-changing or knowledge-changing or sort of worldview-changing influence. As a form of liberation in itself. Yes. And I, I think I'd agree with that. A liberation is the idea through education. Um, is something that sort of permeates the book as a whole. I think, in a way, it does. Um, and I think this is kind of... <clears throat> sorry. <clears throat> um, I think that's particularly interesting when um, she is invited to visit the commander. Well, she doesn't really have a choice other than to visit. Um, and what she actually wants is to consume words. That's the kind of thing that's particularly important to her. Um, but there's this other dynamic um, which I found quite interesting when she was reading. She kind of um, Atwood kind of points out that Alfred feels very watched, like it's it's almost kind of voyeuristic for him to to be watching her read these yeah. books. Um, I don't know what you thought about that. But well, I mean, the question is, what is the commander's motivation in inviting his handmaid to his private chambers and then just playing Scrabble with her? Now, ostensibly, it's because he enjoys breaking rules, but there's something more to it. And the optimistic conclusion is that he enjoys watching a woman be a real person, someone who gets to read, who gets to think, but I don't think it's that. I think he is a bit of a voyeur in that sense. It's like he gets something out of it, but I'm not even sure he knows what that is. Maybe he doesn't entirely know his own motivations in it either. What if it's power? It could be, and I think power is definitely a dynamic in it. But I can't help but wonder if there's something more to it as well. And not something, so I say, altruistic either. But there is a certain subversiveness in it. I think it's subversion to the extent of power. Um, I think somewhere towards the end of the book, and I can't remember who, who's kind of credited with saying it, but talks about the fact that um, he's so convinced of his own role and his own position that he feels that he can get away with it um, and clearly this has been the case in the past and then in the historical narrative it kind of knows that these people were actually clamped down upon as well later on so in that sense I think it, it's completely about his own sense of power but then not necessarily an absolute power. It's more his own perception of what he's able to do with his position. Well, we say get away with it, but of course his wife finds out he's been seeing the handmaid outside of the publicly allowed sex sessions. And it's never quite revealed why, but we know the previous handmaid of that household committed suicide. So he's not actually successful in exercising control, apart from his wider position as commander of a household. The other question is, in, in a book like this, it's 
sort of easy to focus on the subjugation of women in the society. But, and in the intro I said women, but this book is very much about gender. Yeah. And he is both a perpetrator and collaborator in the society, but also subject to it and restricted by it. And it is that sort of dual position of someone who's perpetuating these restrictive norms as part of Gilead's system that also feels perhaps personally trapped by it in a way that he needs to do something, even if it's small, like uh, Alfred saving butter um, in our shoes, or to use as a hand lotion or lotion later on. The number of characters who are able to exercise themselves as a person is incredibly small. I mean, arguably the only one is Aunt Lydia, who Moira is of the opinion that she is actually just a violent bully. And she has a role where she can live out her life as a violent bully. Aside from her, I'm not sure anyone actually has the ability to be who they are as a human. I think it's also actually to do with the ability to be human through other people and through forming other relationships. So with the commander, the thing he kind of misses is true felt passion. Um, and I think it kind of comes through in other ways when um, the handmaids are talking to each other in whispers and there's that kind of need to say something to someone else and kind of understand them back. Um, so, yeah, I think that kind of removal of relationships in any other form than is prescribed by the, the state is quite important. Uh, absolutely. There's also the section where they steal packets of sugar to feed to Moira for no other reason than it's something they can do. They feel like it's something they could have done for her against the system. And it's interesting the way in which these interpersonal relationships also affect the course of the narrative. Because it's those connections earlier on that sort of get revisited. Um, the, should I say, state-distinctioned, um, what would you call it, brothel, I guess. Jezebels. Yeah, the Jezebels. Um, that particularly stood out to me because it's hinted throughout the book of what happens, what happens to her friend. And then when they reconnect, it's sort of this rushed, hurried thing. But it's just this this bit of human connection and all of this sort of chaos and restriction. Well, it's, uh, it's a brothel slash embassy, but it's where humanity lives now. So it's the only place in the novel we explicitly see people of different races because the Gilead government bring ambassadors and visitors and tradesmen there. But it's also where people can drink and dance and smoke and fuck, and it's where they can be humans. But even that is sanctioned by yes. the state, because that's the only thing that they can do there. Yeah. Um, so the bathroom breaks are 15 minutes, and this is a kind of space away from that. And I think that distinction between the space in the bathroom with the women... Um, and the room with the women and the men in it yeah. um, kind of draws this contrast even more because what they're doing in the room is smoking, drinking, kind of like talking to each other in a very particular way. Um, and that's not what happens when they go to the bathroom. Yes. It's much more kind of like... They're finally themselves. Yeah. 
There's also, the commander says something about this being a necessary part of a society. That you couldn't have a society that doesn't have this kind of transgression. And while that's very clearly him kidding to himself that, well, he gets to do this thing and other people don't, I wonder what extent that's true in a dystopia, that you'd need to allow certain people to cheat to avoid them bringing down a system. It's the feeling that it's the regulated rebellion. It's the idea that an individual, if they have some sort of need um, like that satisfied, um, be it a need to rebel or a need to be subversive or a need to do something counter to the existence in which they are living in, that as long as they get a little bit of that, they're okay. And I think that's actually a pretty common theme in many ways in dystopian literature. And you can kind of see that through all of the characters, the kind of like ability for the handmaids to get out the house and go yeah. for that walk is the little thing that they have each day, um, along with the other slightly strange ceremony where they all... The, 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 there's a pravaganza and there's the yeah. women's salvaging. The salvaging is the one Where they all go and collectively help execute someone who's broken the law. But this is the, the classic trick of the police state from fiction to fact is you don't know whether you can trust the person you're talking to. And that's something that would portrays very well. Is you never quite encounter a true fanatic, but you almost never encounter anyone the protagonist can actually trust. Even when the handmaids are away on their walk doing their shopping, they don't know who they're talking to. And even with the sort of system of signals to tell if it is someone you can trust, you still can't completely trust them. Or the environment you're in, whether someone is listening in. Yeah. Something else it had in common with other dystopian fiction, I felt, is that what causes the... So dystopia is usually brought on by some kind of catastrophe or problem. But what it is that causes that problem or catastrophe is often incidental. It doesn't actually matter. And how do we tell this to the extreme in that when we get to the end, the academics actually don't know what caused the collapse in fertility. They make several interesting guesses, which would appear to be perhaps wrong. I think it's helpful that they don't have it right. I think it's a useful illustration that in looking back at history, there's so much we don't know and so much we can't know as fact. And I think that's a reminder that is perhaps too often needed. But at the same time, that held in contrast with the way that women in the society are blamed for the fertility issues, I think is also important. Yes. And the... The men aren't questioned in this way. It, it must be the women that are the problem that's presumed. Whereas it could very easily be, and it's suggested at points, that the um, fertility issue is actually on the men's side of things. Well, it, it's played out very cleverly in the in public, it's the failure of the handmaid, and if she cannot produce children after three tries, she is an unwoman. And yet in private, characters are all subtly aware that this might not be... It might be a male problem, but of course they don't do anything to disrupt the system. They come up with secret ways to get around it. And it's only right at the end we discover that actually there's a decent chance that the commanders are just infertile due to a bioweapon problem. 
And at the same time, it's also presumed to be either or. It's yes. either women or the men, not something that can be affecting everyone. But it, it's the understanding of how it happened that is never really clarified. And I think that's actually a good thing in many yeah. ways. That leaving that vague actually helps the narrative be more almost relatable. Well, so if you made it specific, the reader would be able to reassure themselves that it couldn't happen in our society. If you make the disaster something specific, you can go, oh no, well, we don't have that problem, so it's fine. I mean, most of the problems were precisely chosen because yeah. they were problems of the modern age, and kind of issues of pollution um, and nuclear weapons, and all these kind of things could possibly, in your mind, cause this thing. So let's be honest, for me as an American reading this book, during this election season, <laughs> this is terrifying. So It wh- is absolutely terrifying. So when we first started reading this, I tried cracking a joke, I realized it wasn't a joke because it's just too close to the boat. And then there was this line, which is, this, was, this book was easier to read before it was one cruise presidency away from happening. And or then a thought, Carson presidency, or, or hell, a Trump presidency. And yeah. I mean, it would have been frightening real at the time, but it still has an incredible... There was that Margaret Atwood quote you found that said that the difference between speculative fiction and sci-fi is that speculative fiction is about what we can already do. Now, if you look at the dystopias like 1984 and Brave New World, they were written at times when the instruments of control and science that those governments use were beyond the ability of humanity when those books were written. And indeed, with Brave New World, it probably still is. That's not the case with Handmaid's Tale. Everything they do in Handmaid's Tale is completely doable, and that makes it scary. It just feels so real and so potentially possible in many ways that reading this book personally was very difficult, and I think you mentioned it was for you too, Lydia. Yeah, I think um, particularly the beginning of the book um, where Abbott kind of sets out... um, the society and what's happened. Um, I think the word that I would use would be bleak, um, because there's there's no opportunity, there's no hope, there's no resistance. What you get is a very mundane description of what she does day to day, and it's not pleasant. But I think the thing that struck me most not to take it too much away from the US presidential election, was the kind of chimes it had with other ways in which women's bodies are controlled and aren't really talked about, or are talked about, but somehow don't seem to be sticking. So recently, the kind of birth control um, reports linking kind of birth control to Depression, this is something that has been listed on the side effects of every birth control known to man since birth control was a thing. But yeah, it's suddenly again a big report. I was actually really hoping that this would come up uh, because it's the issue with side effects of a very commonly prescribed or should I say, type of medicine, um, type of pill, be it you know the combined pill or the progesterone only, and yet it's taken so long 
to have women's complaints about it being taken seriously. Whereas there have been complaints since it came out, and that there's this attitude amongst doctors that, oh, it's just you, or you need to find the right pill, but you should definitely stay on it, or the benefits will outweigh the problems, or it'll settle down. All of those things that women are told, and those sort of subtle methods of influencing or controlling decisions. And while I think the birth control pill is a great invention and it's a wonderful thing, um, there is an element to it, and it goes back to, I think, how it was originally tested, especially in the U.S., um, because of the way in which consent was not given for testing and how the labels and warnings on um, medications in the U.S. actually originated with fights over uh, the original pill um, because it was, one, tested on people who originally did not give permission or may have not been able to or did not know what they were actually testing. And it was also done in a way that early issues with testing, say, deaths weren't acknowledged. You were saying earlier that the attitude that Handmaid's Tale has towards women's health is deeply grounded in American history in that sense, from trials on certain pills to Tuskegee to Puerto Rico, to even to the modern HPV vaccine. And I would actually argue it's not just grounded in the U.S. I, I think that it's because of where it takes place and how and the history that influences this novel, it is. But at the same time, there's... It's not exclusive to the U.S. These are things that have happened throughout the world and in many different ways. Uh, Forced sterilization is a thing that has happened in many ways globally, uh, yet is still vastly under-acknowledged in how we study history or modern-day women's reproductive rights or health rights or, for that matter, human rights. So this relates to the way the novel treats fertility in that it's not actually a biological fact for them. It's a moral ideal. So they don't use artificial insemination, and they clearly don't actually test people's fertility because Moira reveals that she actually had her tubes tied many years ago, and yet she got through the handmade process before she escaped. And it is, it goes back to determining the causes for infertility as well. And those sort of gender notions that fertility, responsibility, or going back to the birth control, is placed on women. That that responsibility or right, or however you want to describe it, depending on the context, is always considered a women's issue. Yeah, I think and I say always, but not maybe every single time, but 90% of the time. Yeah, just going back to something that was actually said um, with regard to the earliest trials for birth control as well, the reason that they didn't consider developing birth control for men at that point, um, despite the promising kind of science behind it, was that they didn't think men would be able to cope with it as well as women, and that basically... They have less incentive to use it because they're less burdened by its failure. 
And they also thought that women would be more likely to put up with it or side effects from it, too. But yeah, that's absolutely. So race and class play a surprising role in the novel. Um, there's the implication of, there's the Martha archetype, who's some sort of housemaid, almost a mama character. And it's never quite stated whether these are African-American. But equally, you said that you felt that Offred might actually be a Latina woman, given the framing of bodily autonomy. I'm, I'm not sure I can really accurately describe why or how, but I always, in reading the book, had a sort of visual image in my head of Alfred as perhaps white Hispanic person. Um, and that's something I'm not sure really I could say why or understand why, um, other than to draw on images of historical images of women and fertility restrictions in the U.S. Though, I don't know, how did you, either of you, picture of Fred or off Fred? I think I found it quite difficult to imagine. I think I, I probably assumed she was probably white working class because of the description of what her mother was involved with and kind of like radical feminism um, which I think was sort of in the US in in the way she described it at least to me it seemed like quite a white feminism um, so I pictured her that way but I think I read a lot more into the class aspect because I think precisely because she she doesn't give very much of her identity away, except for in the relationships which she has with others. Then I don't know. I found I found it quite difficult to build a picture of her. I I found that as well. I we know what her shoes look like. We understand the dress. We know the mask with the wings on it. We we, we get a description of the cushion she kneels on or the napkin she tears up, but we don't get a description of her. And that's very deliberate and, and I, I felt that as a thing that I, the, the character was being kept from me for both in and active character reasons. And I found it very effective because it illustrates much better how the fact the human she is is taken from her. This is the opening quote we had. Is she's effectively a, a bunch of flesh around a womb as far as this government's concerned. And though the sort of Situation uh, or situation of it is geographically located in sort of the American U.S. North northeast. Somewhere, yeah. Because um, you mentioned that Salem is brought up. Uh, Salem is brought up as a stop on the underground female road, mm-hmm. and there are Quakers around, and they're fishing, and the liberal colleges. It, it, it feels East Coast New England more than it feels, say, the Rockies. Is the library meant to be the Harvard Library? I don't know, I didn't notice that. Maybe it is. That was kind of the sense. Okay. It's interesting, because like, for me, it always felt like the geography of it, the locationality was shifting as I read it. Mm-hmm. Um, different parts of it felt pulled from different areas. At times it felt you know, maybe Midwestern, like Chicago. At times it felt Southern, like when they're talking about the heat and the long dresses. And at times it felt sort of more northeastern 
And I think that's probably where it ended up being located for me, but... That's true, I hadn't considered that, because her mother and her protests feel Chicago or New York, and yet going on walks with your baskets to the fishmongers feels southern. You're right. I think it also plays on perhaps stereotypes of femininity and uh, different regions uh, historically as well. But it's interesting because it feels in some ways... Almost the generic, made-up American town that you might see in a TV series. But I think part of that is also that the place is almost so unrecognisable and unknown to the protagonist that yeah. it's quite difficult, again, to locate, except through these different cues, like, you say, the weather or, or the hotel what they're eating or kind of these things which actually are kind of a little bit obscure and could be found in many places. Which actually has the interesting effect of making it much more universal as a novel. I think it also makes it more surreal at the same time, too. That it both makes it feel more real, but it also gives it sort of a almost dreamlike quality about it at times. Well, I mean, there are lucid dreams in the story. And certainly the sections transition from day and night. Um, and then finally we get the, the stamp on the end where an academic throws water on whether this is authentic at all. The the unreality of it is, is throughout. Yeah, I mean, I might just repeat the thing I was saying earlier to you guys about kind of the, um, the psychologist and kind of historian of um, Holocaust um, testimony. And he recounts this really interesting discussion he had um, upon watching a testimony with a group of historians where he, the woman recounts how she saw four chimneys kind of bursting into flames at, um, I think it's Auschwitz, and the historians say, well, this can't be true because this isn't what happened according to fact, and they discount the whole testimony because of this. And what the historians then did to the testimony in the case in the book felt to me very much like that. They discounted what was portrayed as a kind of the emotion of it, the experience, the kind of the sense of how things were, not necessarily the fact, but kind of this this feeling, you know? They're they're more interested in in Gilead's laws and its policies and its purges and its documents, they're not interested in, in how her life felt. Mm. Um, and certainly this, this comes up in history in that incorrect memories of people who survived things can be as valuable. They're, they're, they're a form of experience. And I also think it comes to the values that we have in history, sort of going back to what we were talking about, that there is a lack of value placed on things like personal narratives or experiences and that these aren't fact per se whereas the value in them is both in their experiential nature but also in how they're told and I think this book highlights that well that the way in which something is told or conveyed and of course we have this narrative that's supposedly translated to a written medium for us, but there is something almost not transformative about reading it, but there is something that 
does affect the reader. Um, and I think this is the sort of book that can affect you to your core uh, because of that, that is perhaps missing from how we tell and discuss history so often. I'm sorry, I was just going to say that kind of I think also it's a really interesting device of the novel that yeah. having wrapped you into the story and you're completely with the protagonist that the historian comes along and kind of throws doubt on all these things and you do feel personally affronted yeah. because that's not how you've read the novel. You know Offred better than he does mm. and you, you want to defend that but you can't. And at the same time, even in talking about this, we each have our own readings and our own interpretations of her and in the ways which we relate to her, um, based in part on our own experiences and probably you know what we're doing or thinking even while we read this novel. Um, and I know mine is very much skewed sort of historically and American. At the same time, it probably overlooks um, aspects of her existence. And I wonder if there's anything that stands out that we have overlooked um, in talking about this. I know that's a difficult question, (laughs) but it it just makes me think, like, reflectively, like, what have I overlooked? So something we've yet to um, lean on is that significant sections of the book are actually flashbacks to her relationship with her husband. And this is a part of her identity which Gilead denies. Um, Gilead doesn't recognize her and Luke's marriage because it was Luke had previously been married and thus divorced as a sin, and so they're not really a relationship. And I think the two points this becomes interesting is that this is where Alfred presents us with actual love. And we don't really see it anywhere else in the novel. She might have love with Nick, but certainly the commander and her wife don't love, e- don't love each other, and the commander doesn't love Alfred. But the other place that comes interesting to me is a government denying the validity of someone's relationship. Not because the emotions are unreal, but because they don't like the officialness of the piece of paper the relationship's written on. And this is, is deeply relevant to our society from um, the banning on mixed marriages in different countries to modern fight for gay rights. Also to the uh, tax breaks for married couples and kind of the need to be married in terms of, like, still comes into a lot of, like, child kind of support law. Um, if you don't have a marital partner and then they up and leave, then there's not much you can do about it if it leaves country. And there's something about the utility of marriage and Yes, there's a lot of things that you can sort of do through other legal means and other legal documents. But at the same time, it's very difficult to do. It's oftentimes a lot of hassle, uh, really, to set up those agreements for, say, a civil marriage without the term marriage or marriage being involved or union or anything through the standard systems we have. But yet so many couples have been forced to do that. And prior to, say, gay marriage becoming legal in the U.S., you had to have systems of documents set up to, say, access rights to make decisions for your loved one in the hospital, which could still be denied. 
or fought against anyway mm-hmm. and can still be even if it isn't legal mm-hmm. one of the interesting things I found in the book as well was that even though kind of we have these flashbacks of um, of the kind of talking about her relationship and her marriage with Luke and kind of imagine this to be quite a happy thing um, the two kind of primary women I guess in her life are quite anti-marriage is Moira and her mother and neither and, of them and even Serena Joy mm. she's, she's the commander's wife but she does not like marriage yeah and we just wondered what you guys thought about that as well because it just kind of occurred to me when we were speaking that yeah particularly her mother and Moira were against her well, are they anti-marriage because they're pro-women so her marriage to Luke is in is a relationship of love, right? But the fact that they are married is a side part to that. What makes them happy is each other and their daughter. Mm-hmm. Marriage is, as was pointed out, it, it's the legal framework by which you get other benefits. I wonder if that question also sets a bit of a false dichotomy there, though, mm-hmm. um, in that marriage for legal rights and love don't necessarily have to be exclusive things. At the same time, though, her daughter also, I think, plays into it, and the decision to be married, too. And that's one thing we have overlooked, is the role of her daughter. Um, Though we don't really see her much in the book, um, except through certain flashbacks. It's one of those sort of things that seems to ground her throughout the book. And that connection to family seems to be sort of the primary thing that characterizes her prior to all of these changes she's had to deal with in the world around her. Yeah, I mean, I guess... Maybe more what I was getting at is that there was more consistency in her relationships with women than with her husband. So with her husband, there were a few grey areas of kind of, well, is this really the right thing for me? Um, And one of those is kind of because he, when they started um, dating, then he was still married. And also after the regime um, kind of starts changing things and she gets fired from her job, he kind of says something to the effect of, oh, well, at least you still have me, which he's trying to be supportive, but is also still, still kind of like a, I guess, really subtle critique of that time as well. Um, because it's almost like he... He's trying to be reassuring, but he just doesn't really get it. Yeah. He, he, the fact that his humanity is not under attack means that he misses what it is Offred has lost. And I'm, I'm calling her Offred, despite the fact that's the name the regime gave her. Yeah. He doesn't understand what the protagonist has lost because he hasn't lost anything. Uh, and he doesn't understand how that's going to shift his relationship. Realistically, to him, it might mean just a bit less income, whereas to her, it means physical even freedom, but also financial stability, uh, financial freedom. And 
I think that you make a good point, especially about those connections to women. And I think I would add in her daughter as one of those connections because there isn't that uncertainty in that relationship. Her daughter is her daughter, and it feels consistently that she'd do anything she could to get her back. Slightly odd correction. It's actually the protagonist who says we still have each other. Already? Uh, we still have each other, I said. It was true. Then why did I sound, even to myself, so indifferent? So, Luke, I want to ask you now. What I need to know is, was I right? Because we never talked about it. By the time I could have done that, I was afraid to. I couldn't afford to lose you. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so... Um, she says it, but she doesn't believe yeah, it, but right? To the effect yes. that it kind of calls into question the fact... That's that not enough. If it wasn't even up for discussion. Yeah. And maybe it couldn't be. Um, but I think, yeah, that, that's also something that I think bothers the protagonist like, about that relationship. He's also the, the completely untied end of the story. So we learn via Serena Joy that her daughter's still alive, or at least was. And we vaguely know that Alfred gets out, or at least she's able to record an audio diary. We never discover anything about Luke. And it's an interesting gap as well, because they visit the wall, and she mentions expecting or being afraid of seeing uh, Luke hanging. Yet, despite that, they, they do still go to the wall. She, she wants to know but there's really no way for her to. And I think it's also good that not everything is wrapped up so neatly that we don't know. I mean, I also sort of took from that 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 was his sort of inevitable fate. He wasn't going to become a commander. Um, So this was the place she was looking for him because it was the only place she could look. Um, It could could have been a different war, um, I think, as she says. But She'll go to this one because it's the one she that's can go to. We also never find out if she's actually pregnant at the end. Um, but again, this is because her actual fertility is incidental to the story. It's not about babies; it's about control. There's also that there's that bit where they're at Jezebel's, and it's commented that they make sure that any of the girls working at Jezebel's are infertile, so that they don't accidentally have a child. It's like, well, hang on, if this was actually about producing more babies than. But that part of it isn't about yeah. producing more babies. And the point of it is that that is the area where sex could be for pleasure, but not necessarily for everyone's pleasure. Um, in particular, the this is catering towards the male gaze and men in this particular environment. Right down to the Playboy Bunny. Which, interestingly, nobody seems to recognize, because... Alfred makes pop culture references. You'd think that if she knew that was a Playboy bunny outfit, she'd say so. Which suggests that Playboy has been entirely struck from pop culture by the time this happens. So, I was about to say it's easy to forget. It shouldn't be. Um, Violence in the name of Christianity against women's health is a thing that happens. Uh, And part of what makes Gilead so realistically possible is that this is a battleground. We never quite discover the denomination that the sons of Jacob are meant to have been, but this is a realistic enemy. And at the same time, the sort of valuing of women's fertility 
Um, it, it feels like this narrative has a lot of ties or influences um, from the protests and bombings and murders um, of people who have worked in um, clinics that perform abortions. From 1977 to 2015, there were 42 bombings and 11 murders in American abortion clinics. Wasn't there also one quite recently? There was one very recently um, of a doctor who was one of the few doctors in the country left able to perform a particular type of procedure, which at that point seems like targeted assassination. Well, there was, and uh, Rachel Maddow actually has a very um, interesting piece on this, um, discussing the domestic terrorism that is associated with this type of violence, of publishing pictures, names, addresses, the addresses of doctors' children or grandchildren, the schools they go to, and putting those things on flyers and handing them out uh, as if, in, and yes, inciting to violence. It's not like inciting, it absolutely is. These people are not yeah, pro-life, they are pro-control. more kind of like mundane level, like protesting outside an abortion clinic and that kind of act of violence against somebody who's making quite mm-hmm. a presumably difficult decision. Is, and the understanding that these clinics are multifunction and that the person going in there might just be going in for an STI test or um, to get birth control pills or just even for a pap smear. And the fake clinics, which while less overtly violent, are just disturbing, as well as legislative. And this is where, okay, we, we look at the violence and the guns, but if we look at legislative attempts to restrict abortion in Europe and North America and everywhere, that's possibly the closest we get. I mean, I think it was Virginia that had the forced ultrasounds. It's the invasion of one's body before you could actually obtain an abortion. And the mandatory waiting periods, which financially disadvantage women, especially as more clinics close and women have to travel further and further to access services. And that's not just for, say, to access abortions, but to even access primary care that's subsidized. None of these things have health in mind. It's also a fairly, fairly well-known practice that women from Ireland will come to Liverpool and Manchester for abortions. And yeah. You kind of have almost hotels where they basically just cater to this market of people flying in for the weekend for this purpose. It's a, a huge economic burden on top of the emotional and legal one that exists. Well, even recently we had protests in Poland, vast protests about restriction of reproductive rights. But equally on the other side of this coin, there was the American journalist who didn't describe the three terrorists who were arrested as terrorists because they were white and domestic, and therefore they were militia. Um, Despite the fact this is the prevalent form of domestic terrorism um, in many parts of the world. It's this hesitancy, and it goes back to also how we define terrorism and um, the problematically narrow definitions of how we, say, define a terrorist. And that understanding that the definitions used, particularly in, say, mass media, are ones that are very much on the lines of nationality, race, sex, Um, including an article recently uh, on NPR about how the West finally has to acknowledge that women can be terrorists. That's nothing new. 
but yet it's treated as if it is. And the last thing to sort of wrap this around more generally is that I made a list on my notes of science fiction by women which deal with fertility. Uh, and I ended up with eight or nine different stories dealing sometimes with dystopias, sometimes not. And given the underrepresentation of women in science fiction, is it fair to say that there is this carved out subgenre of what might be called fertility fiction? ranging from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, P.D. James's Children of Men, Ayn Rand's Anthem, De Stefano's Wither, and of course Hanley's Tale. Uh, is this truly a subgenre, or is it just very easy to pretend there is one? I mean, I think partly a lot of these novels are dealing with women's and the gendered realities. So, in part... I think because it's such a central way in which women are treated by treated society and degraded by society, inevitably it's going to factor. Um, I mean, we've kind of spoke about books before, which um, Marge Piercy's books always t- also contain an element of um, childbirth or kind of like children in it. And that's, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's partly but just because it's part of women's reality. I don't agree ex- with you. It's an experience they can put on the page which other mm-hmm. authors would struggle to. It's also an experience which they would choose to put on the page. Um, it's not something that many male authors have addressed or addressed extraordinarily well either. And mm-hmm. part of that comes from lived experience, but I also think part of it comes from perhaps interest as well. Oh, if you look at, I mean, I think the most prominent male author to address this idea is Aldous Huxley, and Brave New World is deeply problematic when it comes to sex and birth. I think, to me, the interesting one was Rogers' Testament of Jesse Lamb is about a world in which fertility collapses. Jesse Lamb, the central character, the solution that's positive is that uh, there will be these comatose women called Sleeping Beauties who will be artificially inseminated, and then they will lie in comas just producing babies. And the central character, Jessie Lamb, decides that she wants to become one of these sleeping beauties. And the other people in her life demand that she doesn't. Now, I was initially very disturbed by this image of a world in which the value of a woman is as a comatose baby factory. But equally, if you compare it to Handmaid's Tale, the question is, does the woman at the centre of this story want to use her body to produce another child? And... The society tries to make that decision for her. And so in that respect, Hanley's Tale and Jessie Lamb are actually very close together, despite being weird opposites in terms of what happens to women in them. However, I think there's one really key difference there in the daughter. She has a daughter already. She yes. desperately wants her daughter back. And I think that takes precedence over anything about having another child. Having another child is just a potential way to live longer in this world for her. And maybe to see her daughter at some point, or get more news, or get her daughter back. Because there are also choices in this world. She makes the choice of self-preservation, in a sense. Because in her role, it's not particularly pleasant and she describes that in great detail in the first hundred pages but 
to the extent that she's doing this, then she's staying alive and she's able to perhaps grab bits of news where she can. It's the sort of situations that we don't know we can survive until we've been through them. And I guess that goes back to the sort of academic historian bit at the end of there is this sort of sense of judgment over her. Um, and it's not done in an empathetic way. It's done in a very supposedly neutral way that really doesn't end up being all that neutral. She makes the decision she needs to, that she feels she needs to, to survive in this world. It's one of those tales where you get brought along with the narrator rather than thinking about their decisions. It's sort of, it is what it is. Yeah, and I think this effect is almost heightened by the discussion of the two commanders that could possibly be in the story, where he's describing the kind of powers and the role and the influence they had, and it's almost kind of... I don't want to say celebratory, but the way, the detail and the esteem with which he describes... Esteem is the word, yeah. Um, their achievements. Things they mean they're, they're historically significant to him, I guess. It's almost yeah. as if he's trying to turn it into a great man history. That, 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 that certainly appears to be... It reminds me very much of how people talk about the skills of the Nazis. Wasn't the, weren't the propagandists clever? Wasn't their strategy smart? And that's true, and we should recognize that, but this academic is recognizing that, it's, that cleverness by discounting the testament of a woman. And he only knows about these people because of this woman's testament. And through presenting the testimony and the story, and yeah. then the research around it is all about the other characters, um, particularly the male ones. And it's interesting that comes at the end of the book because that's at the point where you you want to know more. I mean, by that point in the book, you are so emotionally invested in the narrator that you want to know if she's okay. Like, I read that last section hoping for just, just one little tiny tidbit. Just give me a sentence here. Tell me, you know, did she make it out? Did she ever find her daughter? Any of those things. Did she survive? It's almost worse than getting the bad ending, right? Yeah, it, it leaves you wondering, and it's one of those books that sort of leaves you reeling, I'd say. That seems like a good place to finish it then. Uh, thanks very much for listening, and next month we'll be doing Foundation by Isaac Asimov.